Hello, welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Thick. And I'm Renner. And this month we're discussing the Peter Davison serial, Earthshock. Now, I will give you a warning. If you haven't yet seen Earthshock and you think you want to, I strongly suggest that you stop the podcast, go and watch it, and then come back. We'll give you a moment. Because whilst our previous Davison stories have been some of the more left-of-field episodes, this one is one which has resounded through fandom ever since it first aired because of a couple of key twists. Yeah, so there's two big twists. There's the fact that the Cybermen return in this and the fact that the Doctor's companion, Adric, dies. And this is the first, really the only time in the show's history that a companion has actually died a proper final death. I mean, maybe, depending how you count Sarah Kingdom. Uh, and possibly Katarina. So, Katarina and Sarah both die in the Daleks' master plan, but their companion status is kind of an edge case. Like... Roger, but Adric has been a proper companion. He's been a companion. Right. Adric has been around with two Doctors, two different TARDIS crews, two seasons, multiple stories. He is part of the TARDIS crew unequivocally. We saw him in the visitation, which was two serials before this. Yeah, where you actually expressed a fondness for Adric. Although I think at that point you did already know that he was doomed. I did. I did know it was coming. Which is a shame, because it would have been great if you'd gone in with no idea what was coming. But that's a bit like expecting someone to watch Empire Strikes Back and not know what's coming. Indeed. Anyway, the story begins with some paleontologists getting killed off in some caves. The Doctor arrives and he does a sort of William Hartnell in the Time Meddler exposit camera about the extinction of the dinosaurs. Why is that relevant? Why is he doing this? Who can say? Who knows? Hmm. I mean, I mean to be clear, that was the third thing I knew about Earthshock was that it includes the explosion that killed the dinosaurs. Actually, one of several ways the dinosaurs got wiped out. The Doctor Who was given. Right, I see. Poor dinosaurs. <laughs> anyway, continue. So, someone has deployed android servants in these caves to plant a bomb that we ultimately come to understand would have devastated the Earth during a peace conference, which threatened the Cybermen. We, like, we don't understand that until later on, but we will come to understand that is why. This really confused me on watching, because the bomb looks fairly small, and also it's underground, and I was like, wait, but that wouldn't... Well, I mean, putting a bomb underground can make it more destructive if it destabilises the tectonic plates or whatever. Oh, oh yeah, that's actually a really good point. Okay, fine. So, the Doctor puts pay to the androids deactivates the bomb, and they go off in pursuit of its mysterious controllers who are revealed in a cutaway to be the Cybermen. Dun-dun-dun! I mean, we, we already told you that, but... Uh, the Cybermen control signal is being routed via a freighter on its way to Earth, and which is loaded full of hidden cyber-soldiers with the plan that they will get the invasion force past Earth security disguised as... Like, I think it's grain or something. Anyway, having lost their bomb, their new plan is to crash the freighter itself instead and then proceed as before. This was also a point of confusion for me. They seem to have been saying that if the bomb had gone off, they would have invaded, but actually their intent now is to not invade but just use the spaceship itself as a bomb, but that presumably means that most of the cyber army will be destroyed. So I think they're essentially writing off all of the Cybermen on the freighter, but that's not all of the Cybermen and they've got more elsewhere. And the leader is going to escape in the TARDIS. Right. 
Yeah, that's true. But it, I think it does that says something interesting about the Cybermen, right? That like actually they're perfectly willing to just sacrifice a substantial army because it will achieve their strategic goal. Yeah. Uh, so in classic Doctor Who fashion, the freighter crew originally assume the Doctor and Co are saboteurs. The Doctor has to convince them that actually the villains are among them all along. And the Cybermen have a mole among the crew who is unmasked. The Cybermen wakes up his army early to seize the freighter by force. And then, as I mentioned, the leader decides to escape in the TARDIS. So he takes Tegan hostage, knowing that the Doctor will do as he says because emotions are a weakness, etc, etc. Adric gets left behind on the freighter with the last of the crew who attempt to evacuate. But Adric stays behind because he thinks he can break the Cybermen's override and prevent the crash. The Doctor kills the Cyber Leader by grinding Adric's gold star into the Cyberman chest unit because they're allergic to gold and the star was left in the TARDIS. And this is symbolic because in the peak moment of Eric Sayward Doctor Who, Adric can't in fact quite disable the Cybermen override in time and he smashes into Earth. But... 65 million years earlier than planned. I mean, Adric's efforts do save the day because there's sort of three overrides you need to get rid of and undoing at least one of them lets them jump the freighter through time. So they can't slow it down, but it goes back within time 65 million years. And this is like, say, we're doing the pudding lane bit from the visitation again, but writ large, where the ship happens to slip back to the extinction of the dinosaurs, meaning that actually this crash was always a part of history, and so Earth is saved because actually... Yeah, there's a really interesting bit where the Doctor goes, actually, no, hang on, this is good, because actually I think this is like a a known explosion rather than a new explosion, so actually we're fine. A known explosion which the Doctor has handily told us all about in the caves at the start of the story. Right, indeed. But it's a pure coincidence that they end up there, which is very sayward. It's not... A heroic accomplishment at all it's just luck yes absolutely so i mean it's heroic that he tried to stay but actually in the end right it's heroic intent but it's not a heroic success yes and it actually um it's tegan's fault really that adric dies because tegan decides to leave the tardis and she actually basically ends up pretty quickly getting kidnapped and then used at gunpoint as leverage against the Doctor, and then that's why... Well, so actually, the Doctor himself takes the blame back in episode two. Why? Because he messed with the bomb. So his reason for why he should be the one to stay behind and deactivate the bomb is that it's his fault they're in the situation. He's alerted the androids to their presence, he let the Cybermen know that they're involved, and then he tampered with the bomb, setting it off early. And it's really notable because... Why was the Doctor wandering around the caves earlier? Because he was in a sulk after an argument with Adric, in which Adric said that whenever things go wrong, the Doctor never accepts the blame. Right, and I think this is actually a really nice theme of the episode, in that the the Doctor and Adric are basically the main two... Adric is the main companion for this episode, appropriately enough. I I mean, I remember the one thing that Tegan did, which is to f*** something up. I couldn't tell you a thing that Nissa did. 
yeah, this is tidying her room again. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, I, I was aware of it, and I was like, well, is there some gender stuff going on here? But it's not that, because actually the high-up freighter crew are women, including the absolutely superb captain, played by Beryl Reed, who is just devouring the scenery. Oh, and indeed. Well, I, I mean, this is the, the fascinating thing about the casting. In that Beryl Reed, who is one of those actors I feel like I've seen in stuff, or like old movies, but I couldn't tell you. Yeah, and she's not young either. She's this old battle axe. Yeah, like battle axe is not a bad thing. But so like, it's not simply that she's old. It's that like her makeup and her hair are more like someone from the cast of Coronation Street than anything. But I love it. I think it's it's slightly camp in a great way. But she's playing a character who's almost a bit dressed like, and certainly scripted a bit like Sigourney Weaver. Right. Like, Alien is a common touchstone for this story, and like, I think it was a conscious influence on its sensibility. Yeah, there's, there's more than a little of that kind of sensibility. And, and indeed, actually, the people of the freighter are like, they're working class in that sense of like, they're just here to do a job. Yes, so the reason that Beryl Reed won't humour the Doctor and delay their arrival on Earth is because she can't afford the punitive sanctions that will be leveraged on her if they're late. Right, exactly. And I thought that was that was really interesting. Um, I thought the, the slight campness, some of those elements, you know, I could see a Russell T. Russell T. Davis having written Earthshock. Like, I don't know, th- th- this feels to be the kind of episode that the RTD era draws something from. Okay, so before we go any further, I have to make a confession. Go on. Because there is another big twist in this story, which will inform the entire discussion of this episode. Okay. I don't like Earthshock. <laughs> I think it's boring. Yeah, fair enough. And I, I, I will give you that Peter Grimwood's direction is great. He uses the spaces really creatively. The final episode has some of the best pacing the series has ever known. Uh, the freighter crew are all fantastic. But all of this stuff is in the second half. Uh, all well, of the stuff uh, in the caves, you could just jettison, and it wouldn't hurt anything. I, and that's the entire first two episodes. Well, half of episode two. But yes, I don't disagree. If I was editing the story, I would go, just start from the freighter. Yeah, it, it, it's, the bomb stuff is very unnecessary. It, it actually just confuses... The, what the Cybermen are doing. You just could have more of the space, the freighter. You've got this guy on the freighter who is like a traitor, and he is kind of only really used. He's very sketched in. Right, but you could have him with more stuff, right? Yeah. Like, the only reason that they go into the caves in the first place is so that he can mention the extinction of the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, fundamentally that's what it is. And it, yeah, it just doesn't work. And, you know, if this was a two-parter, I'd probably actually really like it. Because those Freighter episodes have, have a lot going on for them, Peter Grimwade is a more accomplished director than the show usually saw. He he shoots the silos, like, in gaps between the silos, and yeah, big, yeah, yeah. he built a model of the Freighter cargo bay so that he could do these great aerial shots. And and he uses low light, which is so rare at this point in the show. His direction is great. Episode four is immaculately paced. I, I said I find it boring, but not episode four. Beryl Reed just absolutely graduated from the Paul Darrow School of Acting with honours. 
Yeah, absolutely. If it was just a two-parter set around the Freighter, I think it would completely change my opinion. Not completely. Um, it wouldn't change one part of my opinion, which is that these Cybermen are not Cybermen. And we'll get to that. What did I, how did I feel about it? I quite liked it. But I only quite liked it. So interestingly, you told me that you were really enjoying it when you'd only seen the cave bit. Yeah, so... So, possibly I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> possibly. I mean, like, I think it's the distinction that's so jarring. Actually, I think there's an entire episode to be made based in the caves, which we can't really imagine, because it would be a totally different episode. Well, it would probably be Revenge of the Cybermen, which is pretty much shot entirely in Wookiee Hole. <laughs> sure. The, the, there, is a, there is a story here that remains in the caves... And it is not Earthshock, but it is a story, right? And I was enjoying where it was going. And I was like, oh, okay, this actually wasn't quite what I was expecting. But of course, notably, the cave story doesn't have the Cybermen in, really. I mean, I knew the Cybermen were coming. Yeah, I think maybe this is partially one of the the, the different perspective things. Because to me, it's like... How many times have I seen a classic Doctor Who story where they go down Wookiee Hole and there's something in the shadows killing... Like, I've seen it too many times. Right, sure. Okay, but I'm quite easy to please. So when I say I'm basically <laughs> enjoying this, like, like I'm not saying I'm a good evaluation of high art, and I think I'm perfectly happy with saying I'm pretty much enjoying something, but also it's a bit crap. I think this is, for me, decent bread and butter Doctor Who. The kind of episode that if I tuned in one week and watched it... I wouldn't be put out, but I probably wouldn't rave about it, you know? Right. It's like, that was some Doctor Who. That was pretty good. But that's an interesting an interesting opinion to hold on an episode that is inherently trying for a double spectacle. Yeah, so I think partially, of course, I cannot see this episode in that context. I knew, I knew Hedrick died, yeah. and... I also knew the Cybermen were in it. I don't think the Cybermen being in it is actually that interesting. But again, I have seen a lot of Cybermen in Doctor Who recently. And of course, it's you're not watching it when the Cybermen haven't been on screen for seven years. Right. And I've seen better Cybermen reveals. I, I think my favourite example is, you know, in Dark Water, where there are those doors that look like Cyberman eyes. Because it doesn't actually then go outright, it's a Cyberman here. But you're like, okay. All it does is it plays that bum, 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 cue. Oh. Which is a really good bit of music. That, that motif for the Cyberman by Murray Gold is very good. Actually, I tell you what, talking of Cyberman reveals, they try to redo the Tomb of the Cyberman thing where they burst through the plastic. And it's rubbish. And also, I could just tell it with a reference, and it was a bit like, okay, fine. It, it's an obvious reference done badly. It's just like a Cyberman that's got a plastic bag stuck on its head. It was a very nostalgic episode, but I don't think I have the context yet to do to tap into the nostalgia it was putting down. So for me, the bit I unequivocally liked was Adric's death. Yeah. There was a real pathos to it. The way Matthew Waterhouse delivers, now I'll never get to know if I was right. And then he just quite calmly and resolutely just sort of stands there and mentally prepares himself for what's about to happen. Right. And it's very well done. I think someone who was writing a more kind of trite take might say, oh, well, this is quite a shallow thing for him to say. 
But he's not just saying, oh, I wish I was right. He's saying so much with that. Now I'll not know if I was right to go back. Now I won't be the person who grows up to be other things. Now I won't get to go home or not. Now I won't get to argue with the doctor again. And I I just, there's so much complexity in that because the tragedy here is this is a child dying. Right, which is... um... Yeah, there's an extra wrinkle to the fact that they killed off the companions is they killed off a really young character. The kind of person who, I don't know how old he was when he was actually filming, but the character is meant to be about the age you could see people watching the show being. Right, yeah. And so there's this thing of, now I'll never get to be someone who has adventures on my own. Now I'll never... We, we recognise as society some particular tragedy in the death of children. And it's not just about something about protecting innocence. It's also a sense of, whether we acknowledge it or not, of like how much of a potential that I'm not saying this is not problematic occasionally, right? Like I think we should not be callous about any life. But what it's tapping into is that primal fear of, because the Doctor and Idric's relationship is, it's not quite paternal, but there's, there's a familial aspect, I would argue. And it's cut short. And so I think a lot of what the horror the Doctor is experiencing in the end is something a little bit like that of a parent losing a child. Uh, see, no, see, to me, what it is is somebody who has a guardianship, a custodian. Sure. The Doctor is feeling, I would say, more like a culpability of negligence rather than... But, okay, but so I, perhaps I just don't feel that they're dissimilar. But yes, I think you're right. It's negligence. It's I have betrayed this child by putting them in danger. Oh, Davison in this story actually reminds me a lot of Peter Capaldi. And when Capaldi realises that Bill has been cyber-converted, it's, I think, not entirely a coincidence that both of those moments are in Cyberman stories. No, and actually that tension is often in Cyberman stories. The funny thing is, right, Adric would be a great candidate for cyber-conversion. Yeah, it is a shame in that respect, that these Cybermen, I'm, I'm going to keep harping on to this, that these Cybermen are rubbish Cybermen. Right. Imagine a story in which Adric gets cyber-converted into a new cyber leader or whatever. You could almost actually, honestly, see Adric sympathising with the Cybermen. And that would be in keeping with him in previous stories, where he often is wooed by the villains, especially for to Doomsday. And that, I think, says something about, you know, when you're young and you're trying to sort out right from wrong in the world and what ideologies you follow and you believe in. I could see a story where Adric is successfully wooed by the Cybermen, thinks better of it. But, I mean, that would change the nature of his death. But we've talked before about how Cybermen are, in some ways, oppositional to humanity in their nature. And that's often the tension. And so I think whenever you have Cybermen in a story, there's always a nervousness that people in it might be captured and converted in a way that I have to say I'm not worried about happening in a Dalek story. Yeah. Death, yes. And and, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it again, these are bad Cybermen because they you don't actually get that threat. The in fact the fact that they convert people isn't even right mentioned here. There's just a much better version of Earthshock that they've missed out on making. Right, that's the thing. I think there's a really good version of Earthshock that could have existed. The one part, though, before they get to the caves that is really good is the setup for all of this where Adric wants to go home and has an argument with the Doctor. Yes, I did like that. And, and then in the end, he works out how he can. But he, he's, he's like, actually, I decided not to. But I did it anyway to prove that I could. But that, again, the now I'll never know if I was right. 
because right. he calculated how to return to e-space, which the Doctor thought was impossible, but then they don't use the coordinates because he decides not to go home. Right, and now he will never find out if he could have returned home anyway. And he'd still be alive. Right, exactly. And the argument that they have sets up this whole theme of blame and fault, because Adric is frequently blamed throughout his stories. He's always the one who causes a problem. And then they have this argument... Adric says that, you know, he's always patronised and then he says that, oh, it's never the Doctor's fault and the Doctor always changes the subject when he's to blame and then they're in the caves, Adric's in danger, the Doctor says that he is to blame. It sets up this theme which then plays into the feeling of culpability and negligence of the Doctor at the end. Yeah. And even Adric being seduced by the villains, either in a perspective straight Simon story or for real in Fort of Doomsday, is still a failure of the Doctor because... Yes, oh no, absolutely. Yeah, well the thing that I wanted to say actually was I wanted to draw a comparison to Kylo Ren. Uh-huh. In the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Right. And specifically, actually, The Last Jedi. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. No, I'm suddenly with you. I, it took me a second. So yeah, yeah. That might come out of nowhere. But, like, specifically the failure that Luke feels yes. towards yeah, Ben Solo, that he became Kylo Ren. And that's absolutely a failure on Luke's part. And it's clear in The Last Jedi, it's portrayed as that, yes, Kylo Ren has fallen to the darkness, but actually, absolutely, Luke overreacted, and that failure pushed Kylo Ren away and led him into darkness. And that can never be taken back or undone. It's a failure of a mentor towards the mentee. Yeah, because the Doctor is professorial or a teacher. is a comparison we draw a lot, but we very rarely talk about the safeguarding elements of that role that the Doctor takes on. Yeah, and it's not a new observation plenty of villains make it that the Doctor hurts his companion or changes his companions to be weapons. Yeah, he's really bad at it. And, and this Doctor more than most. Yeah, he fails Adric here. He fails Adric because of the Doctor's weakness, because the Doctor can be blackmailed about Tegan. The Doctor is basically forced to make a choice between Tegan and Adric, and he chooses Tegan. That's a choice you never want to have to make. Right, it's a horrible choice. I was making a joke about the fact that you'd want both of them gone. <laughs> I actually really like Tegan, but the perception is that they're both awful. No, I quite like Tegan. Um... It's part of why people like this episode that he killed an unpopular character. So at the end, you see Tegan and Nissa like bury their faces in each other's shoulders. They're hiding the fact that they're corpsing. They're laughing. What, really? Yeah, yeah, really. Because they didn't like him either, or...? No, I, I, I've told you before about the fact that Waterhouse was apparently unbearably obnoxious. I mean, Davison didn't like him either, but Davison also very good at acting. Ah, oh, the magic of acting. Um, yeah, so the Doctor fails not just because of this, but actually because Adric should have learned to... to Adric's going back in is kind of trying to reverse a disaster, but actually part of it is that he couldn't leave the intellectual challenge alone. Yeah. And a better teacher would have taught their student not to do that. Going back to the visitation, they have an argument about Adric being too reckless in kinder where the Doctor says, next time you're in trouble, just walk away. But the Doctor is just shouting at him. He's not... Right. And that is like the problem that Adric brings up at the stop of this episode. Right. And he doesn't walk away. Yeah, the Doctor is... Is he worse than he was when he was Tom Baker? Well, Adric thinks he is. Adric explicitly says he is. 
Right, so a degree of attention here is that Adric has basically lost the person who was his good mentor and he's been replaced by this other one who is inadequate. Who Who is... There is more than a little of the substitute teacher yes. about Peter Davison. You know, you had this really popular teacher and then he had to leave the school and they've replaced him with a substitute and he's very nice and he, he, he wants the class to calm down in case you know, he'll wave a leak around or whatever. But, you know, he's not the same. Uh, which, I, to be clear, I enjoy Peter Davison's performance of the Doctor more than Tom Baker's, mm-hmm. and this is becoming more and more clear the more I see. I'm really surprised watching these back how much pricklier he is in his first season, and it really reminds me of Capaldi. And you can see it as an in-character thing where it's actually Adric's death that causes him to change. Yeah, yeah, he realizes that if he hadn't been so prickly then Adric might have trusted him. Do you know what I mean? Like, like maybe it wouldn't have happened in the same way. And that's it. It's always a what if, what if, what if. And it's very similar, actually, to Capaldi is struggling to be nice in his first season. And it kind of takes the loss of Danny Pink and the conflict there for him to realise he needs to be a little more human. Yeah, I think that blame the doctor feels for it the culpability is not given enough room to breathe at the end yeah and it won't be because that's how the classic show works right and i think that's a real shame and something the modern show if we talked about like nissa's backstory that just never gets referenced Shall we move on to talk about the Cybermen? Yeah, otherwise otherwise I am just going to spend like the whole episode constantly bringing up that the Cybermen are rubbish. Right, so the Cybermen in this, uh, I get the impression you think they're rubbish? No, actually, I think they're excellent. No, I don't. <laughs> so I don't. What I will I really say don't. is that I really enjoyed the villains of this episode, <laughs> uh, who are really well executed, good foils, uh, nice, slightly hammy, but quite fun villains. It should have been Ice Warriors. Uh, for some reason, they are calling themselves the Cybermen, and they look a bit like Explode Cybermen. Explode the confusing. bomb! <laughs> it's really funny when he's like, I do not have emotions. Now watch as I obviously toy with your friend because I get... I do not have emotions, but also bring me the doctor alive, he must suffer. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah. It's not very convincing, is it? I think they don't mention conversion at all, and they kind of gesture to the idea that they're meant to be logical whilst they go on about getting revenge. I mean, the the only thing that felt Cybermeny strongly for them to me is the whole conflict, the fact that Earth is clearly their... Humanity, actually, I should say, not Earth. Humanity is like their enemy. My understanding of the peace conference is it's not between different species, it's between different factions of humans. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just between humans. But even then, any stormtrooper alien warrior race could have that motivation. Yeah, none of this needs to be. And actually, it would be better for... The thing of the weird thing about the, the fact that it's the android at the start is that, like, <laughs> androids are just different from Cybermen, right? But they're not so different that it's... Like, if it was, like, androids, but they're secretly ice warriors, it's like... Oh, I androids and it's secretly Cybermen. But like, it's 
Well, and if you're going to do that, you want to specifically illustrate the reason that an android and a Cyberman are not the same thing. Right, which they don't do. I quite enjoy the flashback scene of, oh, where we've met the Doctor before, but it feels like you're trying to use that to cover up for that that you're not actually really engaging much with the actual history and nature of the Cybermen. Yeah. The, The only saving grace is David Banks and Mark Hardy. Their performances are completely wrong for the Cybermen, but they are very fun performances. Yeah, no, exactly. If, if we must have hammy Cybermen, let them be these hammy Cybermen. Yeah, exactly. The Cyber Leader honestly had me almost in stitches, not laughing at him, just like, he's just quite funny. The thing is that in any other character, the fact that the villain has a hint of irony and poetic justice would be like a really good thing. But when it's meant to be the Cyber Leader, it's like, you've failed the basic brief. My army awakes, Doctor! Not that I have any emotions about this. And that's the thing, even if you condensed it to two episodes, episodes and play the ball the good bits about the freighter i'd still be like they're not cybermen though well okay but you could fix that by just writing them differently right you could absolutely construct a great episode out of Earthshock without even changing loads but yes i think you're you are right but they're wasted in this yeah and we see examples in modern who of this kind of thing well the cybermen the cybermen are frequently an example of this in modern who the cybermen have rarely worked well since the 60s uh yeah I, I mean i'm thinking about their appearances in modern who and nightmare in silver i think we mentioned dark water and i'm not convinced they work amazingly in that yeah it's not a cyberman story really and that kind of makes it okay yes it does mean that they get to bring the brigadier back which is obviously une- unequivocally positive oh, God. why did why would you bring that up <laughs> um, but compare that to world enough in time right i mean world, and dr false which, which are just, just superb cybermen stories yeah. i mean the thing about dark water is that there's too much going on yeah there is an interesting story about life after death and cybermen but dark water needs to be about missy and so it can't actually do that part properly yeah, there's not enough space for it to be all the things that it, it could have been. Nightmare in Silver should theoretically be a story that's really using the Cybermen concept well, except that it completely misses on every level. Uh, you see, I know Nightmare in Silver is very unpopular. I actually don't mind it. It's For me, it is also okay. Mm. Mm. I, I know that, that is not a universal opinion. I think it's the idea that like the Cybermen would adapt and make themselves better but portraying that as the fact that whenever they run into an obstacle, they just kind of buzz for a bit and then transform is to completely miss the whole modus operandi of how they would adapt and make themselves better. C- certainly. I-, I don't think it's amazing. But yeah, uh, I quite like Rise and Age of Steel. Yeah, I mean, that's a very classic traditional hitting all the beats that they need to hit. And, and notably, it realises that if you're reintroducing Cybermen, You've got to hit the body horror conversion point. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that's not something they really loop back around to until World Enough and Time, I think. No, that's um, there's plenty of it in Doomsday. Is there? Yeah, I mean, Yvonne gets converted. And also, not Martha Jones gets converted. Okay, that's true. I think the horror of it is not present in the way that it was earlier in the season. And also, I think Doomsday also suffers a little bit from... I like Doomsday, but it's also a Dalek story, and it's also a season finale, high stakes. Yeah, you know, which is possibly actually a really good segue into talking about spectacle finale in the modern series and how much of a forerunner this is. So this was the penultimate episode of the season, yeah. right? But these days, you can't do a companion exit without it being a thing. 
Right, and it would be actually in a fifth finale. Right, exactly. Like you, you wouldn't do Earthshock as a non-finale today. Well, a good example of a death that feels similar is Rory's death in the Silurian episode. Say <laughs> which one? Well, the first—that's the first time he dies. Yeah, yeah. I don't think when I saw that story, I knew that Rory might come back. Really? Yeah. I guess you hadn't seen much Doctor Who at that point. <laughs> Right. Because just by the the rules of Doctor Who, he was 100% going to come back in the finale, and there was no doubt about that. Sure. But I didn't, I didn't necessarily pick that up. Oh, actually, you know what? An episode which does something big, but we're not expecting it, Fugitive of the Jadoon. Yeah. I don't think anyone knew Fugitive of the Jadoon was going to be that. Right, but the reason that Fugitive of the Jadoon landed like that is because it wasn't the final episode of a season. If it had been the final episode, it fundamentally wouldn't clock that way. Amongst all the other radical things it's doing is the fact that it's just doing it in the middle of a season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean, right? I think that's a really great example of just... And I I would like more of that in Doctor Who. Yeah, I hope Chibnall will fully embrace the anything can happen in the next half an hour. Right. A trap that Game of Thrones fell into a bit is often their penultimate episode will be where they'd stick all their big shocks. Yeah. The other difficulty, presumably, is uh, not that these issues didn't exist for Earthshock, I think they did and they had to try to get around them, is the way things are reported on. It's quite hard to obscure the leaving of someone from the show. Yeah, I mean, so I think it would be almost impossible now. JNT had to jump through hoops to do it even at the time. He put Adric as a ghost into the first episode of Time Flight so that Adric would be credited in the listings for the first episode of Time Flight to cover the fact that he was gone. Oh, I didn't Oh, I didn't know that. So actually, Matthew Wilterhouse appears in the next episode as a ghost. Huh. And I believe for the Cybermen bit, he sort of like didn't, he didn't do any kind of Radio Times interview. Yeah, he could have had a Radio Times cover, but he turned it down. Right. And, and then they like obscured the filming. So you can do these kind of things, but I think it's trash. And Chibnall has reputedly been very good at keeping this stuff under wraps. But part of that means that he's been criticised for the fact that he basically won't do any like press stuff, not even for Doctor Who magazine. Right, and I wonder if that's to a degree contributing to some of the like. It's good to do your Radio Times covers. It's good to do this and this and this. Yeah, and exactly. I think it, it, it contributes to where the cultural position of the show, even if people aren't really watching TV non-time shifted in the way that perhaps they once were. I still think it matters. And this is a all right execution of that kind of thing. I mean, was it surprising at the time when Adric died? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I almost want to hear the the word on the playground from like... Oh, well, on that note, Battlefield, uh, not the episode that we watched, but a, a forum participant said that the, the cyber reveal meant nothing to them because the last time they were on screens was the week of their first birthday. <laughs> But nonetheless, they were talking about it non-stop with their friends at school the next day. Uh, so I can imagine that. So it didn't even matter that they didn't understand the import. They felt the import. Well, that that does make sense to me because the, the new series does this all the time. It did this all the time, really. It doesn't do it so much anymore. But like when Dalek happened... I don't think that's a good example because that's too embedded in cultural consciousness. No, that's true. I think that the big three don't count because even people who don't Doctor Who know what Dalek, Cybermen and the Master are. Yeah, I mean, 
Actually, I'm now struggling to think of an example that isn't one of the big three. Right, but here it is one of the big three, right? So my point is, I don't, I don't see why you're making that decision. Right, I, that's a good point. Like, 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 yes. like, 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 we're talking about the Return of the Cybermen. So my my yes, comparison to the Return of the point. Cybermen feels entirely appropriate. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't see where you're getting the. I don't see the similarity, to be honest. Um, the, the, the the point is that there are certain Doctor Who villains who are so embedded in cultural consciousness that you can bring them back. Actually, The Master is actually almost the best example because when Utopia came out, I hadn't seen The Master story. Nobody had seen The Master. I only barely knew who The Master was. But, oh, that... Oh. So I, I think um, you don't need to have seen previous stuff, but you need to be aware of their cultural cachet. And I think people were with Cybermen and that was fine. It's like when they finally reveal that every character has been the Rani, that that's going to be seismic. <laughs> Well, well, well. The Rani. You were expecting to see the Master. Also, it's relevant that this is, I think, the peak of popularity for the JNT era. Yes, this probably is. It was the only serial in JNT's time as a producer whose episodes were in all, all in the top 50 of programmes watched on British television. Yeah, I think the Bidmead influence prevents Tom's last season from eclipsing it. So I think that actually this is a rare case where Davison built a little bit of popularity over the immediately preceding Tom Baker stuff. Hmm. I think JNT's influence here is really good if you've never quite understood what the role of a producer is. Yes. To like understand it is to look at how he impacted this story. Yeah, he in his influence is clear, but it's not nitty gritty creative elements. But, but so much it, it, the... yes and no because turning down a Radio Times cover to preserve a surprise, is still shaping the creative impact. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it shapes the creative impact, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. shape like the... But, like, pro- pro- producer is a role I think a lot of people don't quite have a handle on, and it's quite an odd role and subtle in some of the ways it can be creatively influential. So I made a mistake. I made a big mistake. I went on the forums. Oh, that was your first mistake? Yeah, that, that, was, that was the end of the sentence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went on the forums to get some like feedback on Earthshock. Right. Cool. And I made the mistake of saying that actually it wouldn't have endured in fandom without the ending. And what were the responses? Oh, everybody told me how wrong I was. Or oh, everybody made sure to tell me how wrong I was. Right. I see. At length with essays the, and footnotes. The, nobody, and I mean nobody, like. Doctor Who fandom is not a united world. Nobody took my side. So everyone loves this episode. Everyone loves this episode, and they all think that it is a great episode, regardless of, like, even before that ending. So what do people love about this episode? I don't know, because I don't get it. Like, what what kind of things are they saying? Well, I've mentioned, say, like, Peter Grimwade's direction. Sure. Came up a lot. Uh, and that, like, I agree. I and that is good. He was directing at a higher level than people were used to. I mean, so notably, the very first response said it wasn't the ending that made it a good story. It was everything else. So they didn't like the ending, but they just thought it was made up for yeah. by the rest of it? That's very curious. Um, so there is somebody here who says that they now think it's one of the weakest stories of the season, but when it aired, they thought it was an instant classic. Oh, so that I understand, actually. Yeah. Uh, because I think the shock of it... Uh, and there's plenty of examples of that kind of thing, right? 
I, th- I think like I maybe had a bit of that reaction to the Big Bang, which you really loved on on first watching, but actually looking back, it was yeah. Like... I mean, I don't hate it now, but I don't like it as much as I did. Yeah, I enjoyed season five on the rewatch, but I hadn't seen it for some time. So here's some input from Prof. Watt, Professor Watt. When I rate a story, ultimately it comes down to gut instinct, but there are several points that consciously play into it. Do I enjoy it on the surface? How good were the regulars? Were the incidental characters strong? How good were the villains, or how were they handled? Did it accomplish what it set out to do? Admittedly, at times, that can be a negative. Does it make sense in a Doctor Who sort of way? When I'm considering the things I list, Earthshock would still stand up pretty well if the ending were to be taken away. So actually... When he puts it like that, I can actually see why Earthshock would hang together. Yeah, if it was the freighter only. Yeah, I don't want to make the mistake of following what you've said. Because as you point out, I was enjoying it to begin with. And as I said earlier, it was pretty good for me. It was bread and butter. But I didn't love it. I I, I do not really understand someone who can be like, this is amazing. Yeah. Professor Watt says that there is one criteria they consider, which is how memorable or impactful the story is, and that Earthshock would not rate on that without the ending, but that is separate from it not being good or a classic. And that almost, I think, touches on some of this bread and butter who stuff I'm talking about. Of the episodes we've watched on this podcast so far, I think the only one I can remember for me, like super dragging, was when we watched The Mutants. Okay, so in fact, here's one that's exactly what we were just talking about. It's Dr. Q. That cliffhanger. Anyone who enjoyed the invasion, or even knowing Cybermen by repute, might be thrown off kilter. Even without knowing their lore, the twist and booming ending is so strong that it works on its own. Right. And I I don't disagree with that. Uh, Interesting point here from David Bush, who says that part of the impact is that the Cybermen's return here, they've previously rarely been depicted as formidable as they were talked up to be, whereas here they are. So that's quite interesting, and they certainly are a formidable enemy yeah. here. I think so. They are probably more formidable here than in the invasion, where they spend more time running around screaming than actually marching around. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate it's, it, it, an army full of Cybermen in a vault is a thing you've done before, but the freighter full of Cybermen reminds me a little bit of uh, Ascension of the Cybermen. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Which almost has a similar, slightly similar feeling. So a poster simply called Chair summed up what other people had said about it as, to put it another way, it was the first time Doctor Who had a decent pace to it. So that is quite interesting. You clearly don't agree because you were bored by it. No, I do agree to an extent. Like, I I absolutely agree about the second half. And just in general, like, I absolutely would say that Peter Grimwade was just much better at that than everyone else at the time. There certainly isn't much flab in the shots. Is what I would say. Mm. You know, the editing is tight. I don't know. The, I, don't, I just don't think the material is tight, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think fandom is right on this. I'm sorry, all of Doctor Who fandom, but this episode is pretty good. Or, according to Flick, terrible. This is excellent news, Doctor. So, it's not that long since we last saw Davison. And indeed, it was this crew. Indeed, it was this crew, and only two stories earlier, chronologically. And that was also... That was also a Sayward strip. Right, so that's where I'm getting to, is that we talked there about the birth of Saywardianism, mm-hmm. and here here it's in full swing. This is like the er uh, text of the Sayward era. Everybody fails, nothing Everyone goes fails. well, Everyone it's all a bit killed. grim. Everyone's quite prickly, including the Doctor, as we've mentioned, and he even reuses 
the pudding lane twist, except that instead of setting fire to a bakery, they're going to set fire to the dinosaurs. Right. It's done a bit differently here because in the pudding lane one, they're like, should we stop it burning down? No, I think we should let it burn. And that's kind of similar to what happens here. But it is genuinely a relief for the doctor when he realizes it's 65 million years. Yeah. And that is not the same as what happened in the station. And actually, it's more interesting. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, thank goodness. It is more interesting than the pudding lane twist because. It has a story relevance, if you saw it. Because it has a story relevance in that thing that we were saying about it not being heroic that the only reason things go well for them is a coincidence that fits the tone and the the vibe of the story. Although, of course, if it wasn't the case that they'd gone back in time that much, maybe the Doctor would have taken different actions. So the fact that it intersects with history is directly relevant to how the Doctor acts and therefore relevant to the outcome. Yeah. Which means... I have a question to ask. Do you? Yes. Yeah, is this a history or a mystery? Hmm. Now, it's an interesting one. They don't make much of the peace conference, and if they had played that up more, that that by itself, I think, would have made it a history. Yeah. But it's just, it's not quite significant enough. Is this history? Is it, is there enough? I don't think there is. I don't think there is. I don't think you watch this, and at any point you actually think about, like, the impact on... And, so the, and the dinosaurs thing doesn't make it that, even though it has more intersection with the story? No, because like the Pudding Lane thing, it just turns up at the end, and its connection to the story is 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 about the themes of like non heroicness and blame, and like it's nothing to do with right. It's not about the dinosaurs. Like if they'd accidentally pointed the freighter at the sun, you would still hit all of those relevances. Right. If more was made of the dinosaurs, yeah, or the peace conference, sure. like it's on the fringe where. The same plot written differently. Could have, yeah. Which, in fact, gets to the heart of why I was sort of made this distinction in the first place, which is that it's not the bare facts of a plot that determine if something is a historical. And so if I'm being true to that, I have to say that this is not a historical. This is a mystery. Okay, great. Well, now we know. So what I wanted to say is... If you've listened to this and are thinking, should I watch Earthshock? I would say no. You should have watched it before if you were going to. You should have watched it when we told you to. Yeah. And now... Now you've had all the good bits drained out of it anyway. Yeah. Like being converted into a Cyberman. Right, exactly. Cyber conversion of this episode is now complete. A small um, drip of trivium before we go on our way. This story is the origin of the Doctor's catchphrase, Braveheart Tegan. Huh. And it was an ad lib by Peter Davison. Oh, that is good. And it's a good catchphrase. Cool. I'm done. Okay, cool. Still don't like it. I really wanted to. I really thought that I'd changed my mind. It's been 12 years since I last saw it. So next time? Next time. Well, actually, let's cast our minds forward a bit more generally because we're drawing to the end of this run. We have one more month, then we're going to be taking a break until the anniversary, where we will be back with an anniversary special in which we're going to watch, listen, and read every single variant of Sharda, the greatest story that was never made. Right. Then we will be off for another month before we return at Christmas with a new reversed polarity episode where we discuss a modern Christmas special through the lens of the classic who we have subsequently watched. And then we will be kicking off season three of Relative Digressions in January with the polarity back in its proper order with the 10th planet, more Cybermen, regeneration, the first regeneration, and a return to the William Hartnell era. Pretty exciting. But finally, for this season, 
we are going to end in fitting fashion with a spectacle finale. And uh, what is that spectacle going to be? I think we've already alluded to it. It's going to be the Crotons. No, it's going to be Trial of a Time Ward, the whole of Trial of a Time Ward. You might have noticed that we haven't been back to Colin for quite a while. Well, you're going to get um, your fill. <laughs> that means, I think, are we going to do more than one episode? We're going to strip it across the month because Trial breaks down into four segments. We're going to do one each week across the month, probably slightly shorter individual episodes, building into one greater whole not unlike trial itself, but hopefully, I was going to say, but hopefully with less annoying disruptions where we cut out of the action for some pointless babble, but that's actually exactly what we're going to get. I mean, that is literally like the, that's the raison d'etre of the show. I'm not sure you've been misinformed, I think. So that's what's coming up. Any final comments? Um, I actually enjoyed the special features on the DVD for this one more than the story, I have to confess. Yeah, I, I, I'm feeling the lack... I've heard the special features are quite good here, and I'm watching a Britbox, obviously. Yeah, there's a really good deep dive with the props and costume department where they go through making the Cyberman costumes and, you know, sourcing all the parts, working out which parts they could source, like the, the RAF flight suit mm-hmm. versus which parts have to be custom-made and every individual component and all the logistics around it. Mm-hmm. It really covers the nuts and bolts. That deserved a laugh. That deserved a laugh. No, I'm just... <laughs> we have, we been, have been... I have been... Rena- I, no, I'm doing it for what? once. Okay, go. We have been... Flick? No. What have... No, I, um, this, you, this is I, why you do it. I have been Renner. I've been Flick. And this has been... Relative Digressions. Relative Digressions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renner Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. <laughs>